Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Blair Levin, who oversaw the creation of the National Broadband Plan under President Obama and served as FCC Chairman Reed Hunt's Chief of Staff under President Bill Clinton, and he's the current Executive Director of GIGU. And I'm also joined by Clint Odom, Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at the National Urban League. This year, the National Urban League put forth the Lewis Latimer Plan for Digital Equity and Inclusion, outlining steps toward ending the digital divide and creating a more equitable and inclusive society in the U.S. We discussed the goals of the plan, which include deploying networks everywhere, overcoming the significant adoption gap, using networks to improve the delivery of essential services, and creating new economic opportunities in the digital economy, and how the National Urban League is working with policymakers at the federal level to advance this agenda. Lynch and Blair, thank you so much for joining me. It's it's wonderful to talk to you both. So um, let's get right into it. This year, the National Urban League released the Lewis Latimer Plan for Digital Equity and Inclusion. So tell me a bit about the plan and what it calls for. Well, well thank you for having us. Um, Lewis Latimer is a very, um, is not a very well-known character in American history, despite his uh, tremendous contributions to many of the things that we take for granted in this country, uh, like the incandescent light bulb uh, or, or the telephone. Uh, uh, Louis Latimer was an African-American draftsman who was born after slavery uh, with little to no formal education, uh, taught himself to become a, a draftsman, and was a great many other things in his career, but uh, his drafts uh, contributed to uh, the work that led to the patents around uh, the incandescent light bulb and the, and the telephone. Uh, and, and despite his tremendous uh, contributions, he, he was not very well known. And, and so uh, the National Urban League thought it would be good to lift up this historic figure uh, as an example of what is possible when uh, more people are brought into society with all of the benefits uh, like access to, to broadband, access to good education, uh, and, and a fair and equitable starting point in life. And, and so that, uh, for your listeners who may be wondering who, who is Louis Latimer, um, he, he, is, he is the figure. Uh, and, and this project really started um, and got a lot of its impetus in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Um, there was, uh, it really re represented a, a tipping point in the country where I think many people started to understand that there are long-standing inequities in the country. Um, not, not only were those inequities put on full display um, in the video that we saw of George Floyd's murder, but as the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic swept the country, we also began to see many of these same disparities. Uh, some of the most glaring were in the area of, of education, where uh, starting in March of last year, um, most of America's 55 million children, K through 12, uh, went to remote learning. Uh, and, the, and the very sad story of that is uh, a, a great, uh, almost an, a generation of children uh, basically lost an entire year of schooling. Uh, and that happened because often there was no device 
that the child had access to, and there was no broadband service uh, that the child had access to, either because broadband was not an affordable product or because it was not available to them. And so these two um, e events were really the, the inspiration for the plan. Uh, and for those of us like, like Blair and I who've been at this for 30 plus years, uh, we, we really saw an opportunity uh, where people finally started to understand that broadband is important. It's not just a, a product that people are out there selling, but it's, it's important for every facet of life, uh, learning, uh, telehealth, um, you know, job search, job searching, work, work development, and civic participation. So we thought this was a, a wonderful time to, to hatch the plan, and, and Blair um, has just been a wonderful partner in, uh, in helping helping us pull together a plan a little, uh, as, as Mark Morial likes to say, our, our little charity, the National Urban League, we, uh, we had tremendous resources and support from, from Blair and, and, uh, and Smitty uh, Smith over at DLA Piper, and it was just a wonderful project. And I would just add that, you know, 10 years ago when we did the National Broadband Plan, um, the core of it was we need networks everywhere. We need everyone to get beyond those networks. We need to improve how we utilize the networks to deliver essential public services. There was a lot of mild support uh, for that agenda, but the country had bigger priorities at that moment in time. I think the combination of COVID and uh, the uh, what happened with George Floyd, uh, his murder, created um, a greater sense of urgency about all of those issues. And uh, th this is not the equivalent of a national broadband plan but is the parts of the national broadband plan that really go to the most important issue, which is digital equity and inclusion. Right, right. And I, I want to talk a lot more about digital equity, especially with equity being at the center of President Biden's um, policy agenda um, and how that look what that looks like in practice. Um, but to take a, a quick step back, you also both of you mentioned um, the availability of networks, which is one of the, the main goals in, in the plan. So um, great goal to have <laughs> the availability of networks everywhere. I'd love to talk a little bit about how your plan um, sees us getting that done. Primarily, as it was 10 years ago, primarily a rural problem, um, though it's not 100% a certain the uh, there are certain things that just have to be done that the last FCC just did not do. Uh, and uh, it's really a great tragedy for the country because it puts us, uh, you know, a, a year or so behind where we or more where we should be. The first thing is you actually need to define what broadband is and what the minimum standards are. It, you know, I, it's not going to surprise anyone given my the administrations I work for, that I would be critical of Chairman Pai. But this is not a political criticism. This is not a partisan criticism. This is an institutional one. In the spring of last year, he should have put out a one-sentence notice saying, what does COVID teach us about what the minimum standards for broadband will be? Yeah, you could add a lot of stuff, but that's the question. That's not a partisan question. We just ran a huge experiment about what kind of broadband people need in their homes. And instead of asking the question and actually finding out the answer, the FCC leadership decided we should just talk about how the fact that the Internet is working is, is an indication that our F Internet Freedom Act was, or, you know, was, was the right regulation, which, of course, when I say this as a Wall Street analyst, that had nothing to do with it. But 
but my point is the first task for the FCC is to redefine what the minimum standard should be. And by the way, in the plan, we don't actually do that. We, we, tell, we say the FCC should do it, but there are lots of people who they already know the answer to that. I find that somewhat interesting because I, I study this stuff pretty, I, I don't know what the answer is. This is what the government's supposed to do. The second thing is once you have that, you do the map. Now the now the, the FCC is doing that, but then you have to you have to do that, and then you have to decide on a mechanism for the distribution of funds, and that's a really interesting challenge. RDOF, uh, the FCC just did. I I think reverse auctions have a lot of advantages, but there were a lot of errors that the FCC made, and so we we make some recommendations how to fix those errors. But I would just note that, for example, in the COVID bill, and I think this reflects disappointment in the FCC. Uh, the Congress just turned over $10 billion to Treasury, which is kind of interesting for some, uh, apparently some broadband uh, capital d- deployment. But, you know, whether it should go through the FCC through reverse auctions, it should go through NTAA, whether it should go through Treasury, these are these are all debatable points. We, we hopefully add some wisdom to that. But the key thing is we need a surge of funding to finish the job. That's the key point. Yeah, and and I think we also need a lot faster uh, movement um, by by Congress in coordination with the Federal Communications Commission. I mean, uh, we just recently put out an emergency broadband benefit that was uh, enacted into law at the very end of uh, of last year, and we are still, um, you know, even with the expedited uh, time schedule that Congress directed the FCC to have a rulemaking, we still don't have funds on the street. And every day that goes by when these funds aren't available, uh, we're missing huge opportunities to, to reach people during an emergency. Uh, so w- whatever the solution is, uh, and, and you know Blair just touched upon a great many of them, but w- we have to move with, with dispatch. Otherwise, we're just talking to ourselves on a podcast. <laughs> yes, right. That is not the ultimate ultimate goal. Um, so, just in terms of um, the the mapping, you know, you you alluded to this, Blair, that the acting chair uh, Jessica Rosenworcel has put together a task force to look at that. From your time in in the FCC and from from looking back now, um, do you have any suggestions on how mapping needs to change? That's a technical question that I don't feel qualified <laughs> fair to enough, do. Fair I'm enough. glad she put together a task force. I hope that they have a tremendous sense of urgency. Look, this is something that the United States ought to be very good at, right? Right, right. Um, industry does this in a variety of ways. State and local governments have been doing this. Um, one of the things that I learned in being chief of staff during the implementation of the 1996 Act, where Congress gave us a bunch of impossible deadlines, was there really are no impossible deadlines. I mean, yes, there are, but but if you create a sense of urgency and you uh, you, you just act really quickly, there are a lot of solutions out there. Don't think you're going to get it 100 percent right, but if you get it 85 percent right in two weeks, you're better off than getting 100 percent right in two years, and you're still going to be better off than we are currently. I mean, the problems with the mapping have been well known for years and can be easily fixed. Um, 
Great point. Um, so the second major goal of the the plan is uh, getting everyone connected, right? Once we have network availability, which brings us to the adoption gap. And I'll admit that I was surprised to read in your plan that the adoption gap is approximately three times larger than the availability gap um, in terms of the number of Americans affected. So can you unpack that a little bit more um, and how your plan envisions closing the adoption gap? When we were doing the national broadband plan, one would say there were three fundamental causes of people who have access to it not adopting. Relevance, uh, digital readiness, and affordability. With affordability, with relevance, actually, at that point in time, probably being one of the more important ones. Uh, but I think the relevance issue has gone away, not just because of COVID, but kind of COVID was the nail in the coffin on that one. Um, uh, so you really now have two big problems you have to address. One is digital readiness. Um, there are a lot of great community groups doing different kinds of work, but for certain populations, particularly elderly, but not, not just elderly, uh, America has a literacy problem. The internet usage is still fundamentally, uh, this probably will change in five or 10 years as it becomes, you know, uh, a device that one just talks to, but still now it's the, you, you have to be literate to really take advantage of the internet. So we propose uh, in the plan a, Office of National Digital Equity, which is a convener and a best practices uh, kind of entity uh, for purposes of um, uh, adoption, but also has funds for a digital navigators core, similar in spirit to what we did during the Affordable Care Act sign up, where you had people who were trained to help people with their questions. And then you get to the affordability one. We could spend the rest of the time talking about that. Uh, I will I will try to keep it very quickly to simply say um, affordability is a, is a big problem. And when we say affordability, we don't mean the average price. We mean the entry level price, because that's the population that, that we're aiming to get on. And um, the current Lifeline program absolutely does not work. It's not used for in-home broadband. Um, one way of addressing it, which would be great, is if the Congress simply takes what it did with the emergency broadband benefit and makes it a permanent program and funds it every year. I think there are political challenges to that and sustainability challenges to it, but that's a simple way to do it. We also propose an alternative. Either one would be fine, in my opinion, which uses kind of existing programs, uh, particularly healthcare programs, where there's actually savings to be had if an insurance company knows that 100% of the people uh, that they're insuring are um, have broadband. There are administrative savings. There are actually healthcare outcome savings. And if you look at the Medicaid population, that covers a huge number of the uh, people who don't have broadband. You know, uh, I think it's about 15 million kids going to public schools don't have um, uh, broadband in their homes. That's the so-called homework gap. About 70% of those kids are covered by Medicaid. If there was a Medicaid benefit that would save Medicaid money, you, you would also get those kids online. Um, uh, in ways that help both education and healthcare. And, and you know, COVID has really exposed a particular cruelty. Um, you know, we've talked about the digital divide, the homework gap, but now we've got the, the vaccination gap where uh, state governments are telling people, well, if you'd like to get a, a vaccine, a vaccination, uh, you should just go online and, uh, and, and register and, uh, and wait, you know, for your, your number to be called. Uh, the, you know, th this is a particularly cruel aspect 
of of uh, of, a, of the utilization gap. We, we've asked people to do things they just don't have access to or ability to, to get. Uh, and one point on the affordability, um, we 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 saw some data in Greater Kansas City, uh, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, after the schools closed uh, to, 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 for remote instruction, 45% uh, of the students never logged back on. Uh, and, and the studies that were, there was a study done um, by the Kansas City Library that showed that affordability uh, for broadband service was, was one of the biggest problems. So th this is an 80% African-American public school district. 45% of the students didn't come back on. And and the you know the, the data suggests that lack of devices and lack of affordable broadband access was the principal reason that they did not. Uh, so you know these aren't abstractions; these are very real uh, people and very re real uh, impacts. Yeah, that's horrible. So let's talk more about digital equity then. That uh, leads right into it. Um, so President Biden has put equity at this at the center of all of his policies, or and he's directed his administration to do the same. So, what does it look like? Um, what does that look like from a digital divide perspective? Um, I was just talking with a group, um, the Federal Communications Bar Association, yesterday, and we were talking about equity, and and there's this notion that equity is is a new term in, in the American lexicon. Well, I, I reminded the audience that uh, equity uh, pre-exists the United States Constitution. It's a notion that came from, uh, from, from England, um, you know, in, in the very earliest parts of uh, creating a legal system. Uh, equity is really trying to find a remedy that is not solved for at law. And, and so what equity looks like in, in, in my opinion, and, and I think is undergirding the entire plan, is being intentional about helping people, not just sort of flooding the zone with a subsidy and, and, and just, or, or a jump ball that, that says people should, you know, sign up for this program and, and everything will come. It's about being intentional in every aspect, from the funding of it to the prioritization of the funding. Uh, to the the utilization uh, that that we've talked about, teaching people why this is relevant and teaching them how to use it. Uh, it's 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 all about equity and making sure that we just don't continue to exacerbate the gaps that that many Americans are are just finding out about, uh, but not not playing into that. And I think the administration has been very wise to make equity uh, one of the four pillars of uh, of its of its recovery and and indeed of the. The, the Biden-Harris presidency, uh, and this plan uh, really tries to 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 fly right into uh, in, into that movement. And, and if I could just add, I, I think Clint's point's a really great one. I, it it was built. The principle of equity was is in the opening of our Declaration of Independence. Is one of the reasons we decided uh, that we did not want to be subject to the rule of kings or queens. Um, it is built into the 1934 Communications Act, which is the principal law governing communications that we were not going to leave rural people behind and, and there's a mandate for affordability. Um, uh, and it's very much at the heart of our plan. But I, I would just point out that on Biden's first day in office, he signed an executive order related to racial equity, which asked all the agencies of the government to report within 200 days what they're doing to assure that all, but particularly historically, marginalized communities 
have equitable access to all the services being offered by um, their various agencies. And Clint's point about vaccines is being duplicated across the board, whether it be job training programs, um, access to certain kinds of healthcare provisions, access to certain kind of Department of Labor programs. They're all going online. That's where all the action is going to be. So you actually cannot achieve the goals of that executive order unless you have an underpinning of networks being everywhere and everyone being able to afford it and having the tools to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to touch on one other part of the plan, um, which is the civic engagement part, which you alluded to before, uh, Clint. Um, I was excited to see that in the plan, and I was excited to see that it touches on um, targeted misinformation, uh, specifically toward mar marginalized communities and communities of color. I think that algorithmically promoted misinformation is a enormous crisis for this country and world. Um, so can you talk a bit about the problem of online misinformation as it relates to the digital divide and, and what your plan calls for there? Sure, uh, well, a little, a little background. Uh, in 2019, the National Urban League put out in its annual State of Black America report uh, findings uh, from the uh, Senate Intelligence uh, Committee that the Russian Federation had embarked upon an intentional campaign to identify African-American users online and to uh, actively try to suppress their vote uh, by trying to shake the faith that African-Americans may have in institutions like voting. There were, um, there were entire uh, characters that were developed, uh, fictional of course, telling people about the futility of voting uh, or, or telling them that uh, there were going to be law enforcement uh, at the polls and, and people looking for people with warrants and all, all sorts of disinformation. And although uh, we have never been able to quantify the impact of that disinformation on voter turnout, um, th there is lots of anecdotal information that it actually worked. Some of that um, campaign, by the way, tried to foment dissent not only online, but to have that dissension spill out into the actual world. Um, the events of January 6th are almost certainly uh, proof that dissension fomented online can actually translate into real-world uh, disruption and violence and anti-democratic activity. So uh, knowing full well what the stakes were for um, African-American and Latino uh, voters, um, that the National Urban League really jumped on, on this issue. And we thought if we were going to be doing a national, uh, you know, a, a digital equity and inclusion plan for broadband, to be genuine and authentic, we had to address these issues as well, which are at their core about informing people about what's going on online, about the consequences of logging into certain places or listening to or believing wholesale some of the things that we see online. And so, you know, we, we offer no um, absolute, um, you know, solutions to these problems, but flagging them um, for, for communities of color and, and, having, and having them be aware at a much higher level, uh, we think, will lead to more rigorous uh, 
civic participation voting in particular, the, the, the difference between voter participation in 2016 versus 2020 was considerable. Uh, and even though we know that there were uh, domestic and foreign agents out there actively trying to suppress the vote, the campaign was far less effective in, in 2020. And, and we think that was in part because of education uh, and, and, and maybe institutionalizing that, that education it is a way of making sure that um, that kind of voter suppression doesn't happen again. Yeah. Um, so I, I warned you guys that I could talk to you for hours about this plan, but I will round it out because you have better things to do than talk to me about the plan all day and you need to get on with closing the digital divide. So um, in terms of uh, this plan, it is really thorough. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. So what are the next steps here? Are you working with the administration? Are you working with any members of Congress? Um, uh, what can we be looking out for? And maybe uh, just a really straightforward question, would you like to see President Biden say, we're going to end the digital divide in my in my presidency or in my first year, <laughs> second hundred days next week? What do you think is, is possible? I may let Blair talk about some of the um, some of the implementation aspects of this. But one aspect of this that was built into the plan and worthy of mention is the plan actually contemplates being done in four years time which means that a, a single administration, should it care to pick up this plan and implement it in, in total or in part, could, could actually make uh, a big difference. And, and I think that, that was, there's an intentionality around that. And, uh, and, and there, there is still time. Uh, if, you, if you look at the calendar, there's still plenty of time uh, to get it done. Yeah, I, I, would, I would add to that that uh, I think one of the kind of conceptual mistakes we made uh, doing the national broadband plan 10 years ago um, was that we had 10-year goals, which I think gave people um, too much running room to think, I'll just articulate things, and then it's up to someone else to actually finish the job. What we tried to do here is say, okay, it's on us. We need to do this. We need to do it now. And, and with, with the key point, and we said this 10 years ago, and we say with even greater uh, sense of urgency now, that the cost of the digital divide is large today, and it's growing. Every day that passes, more and more of the economy and society goes online. And for those people who are offline, uh, they're missing this. So we're, we're releasing the full plan, hopefully quite soon. Uh, we, are, we have been talking with people in the White House, people in Congress, other organizations. Let me add that there are a lot of other groups uh, that I could name that have put out similar plans. Ours, ours, I think, is more um, global in terms of the number of topics that we cover. There are lots of good ideas in those plans. This is not designed to be the Ten Commandments, where every one of them should be followed. This is designed to be part of a very constructive, what we hope is a policy debate, particularly around uh, the infrastructure bill, that was probably the next big thing up. But it's not just mm -hmm. about the infrastructure bill. It's about the executive orders. It's about the way government actually functions uh, to create a more equitable and inclusive economy and society. That's going to be done online. There's tremendous opportunities that we haven't taken advantage of, but we have to have a greater sense, as, as Clint said, of intentionality and urgency about that. 
One, one of my favorite uh, studies in, in the past few months was issued by uh, Citibank on the cost to the country in terms of lost productivity and innovation as a result of um, uh, basically these, these racial wealth and home ownership and education and, and business gaps. And if we can do this plan right, um, it, it is not good just for equity's sake. It's not a feel-good plan. It actually drives a lot of economic activity uh, that would far exceed the, the cost of the plan. $16 trillion was really the number that city attached to the lack of meaningful participation by African Americans in the economy and, 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 other, and other groups of color. So um, th th this is not just a feel-good plan, but it really is at its heart uh, about economic development and economic growth. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you both so much for your time and for your excellent work on, on this. And I look forward to seeing how, uh, how it progresses and uh, what comes out of it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Clint Odom and Blair Levin for joining me. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.